baffled Christians throughout the centuries is what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with it? Do we follow it? Do we not? Oftentimes, when you go into churches, it's usually a smattering. Some people are, are saying things that they read in the Old Testament, and they say, you need to do this, but yet there's another part of it that they definitely don't do. Do we follow the Old Testament? Do we get rid of it? Is it completely null and void now? How do we, how do we respond to it? What does God want us to do? Now, in Jesus, through Jesus' words, Jesus says in our text for today, and I want you to look at it, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not to come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying that it's permanent. But how then do we apply it if we, we're, we're not supposed to? If Jesus fulfills it, yet where do we do with it? Well, that's what we're going to learn about today. So before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we thank you that you are the God who cares, that you are the God who has given us your word, your revelation, that we might know how to live in a way that is pleasing in your sight, the way of blessing, the way of purity, the way of joy. Lord, many of us, though, have gone and walked on ways of disobedience. We've turned from you. Lord, we've disregarded your word and cast it underfoot. But Lord, open our eyes that we might see the wonderful truths within your word and how you desire us to apply your word to our lives, that we might experience the joy that you intend for us. So please, Lord, open wide our hearts to receive the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's, let's jump right in. First of all, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but fulfill them. And he goes on and he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that the Old Testament is permanent. And for us to understand and apply what Jesus intends for us, we have to look at the permanence of the Old Testament. That's the first point that I want you to write down. Looking at the permanence of the Old Testament, God has said that the Old Testament is fixed. It's immovable. It is irrevocable. Jesus says here that I've not come to abolish that, to fulfill it. So I'm going to go through these points rather quickly, so I need you to stay with me. First of all, we need to understand that the Old Testament has not been abolished. Now the word abolish in Greek is katalise, which means to cause to be no longer in force. Abolish, annul. Make invalid, do away or repeal. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. So the Old Testament is still in effect in a sense. How? Allow me to explain. It's not been abolished. It's still, still in force, but not in the same way that it was before Christ. He came to fulfill. So we still see that the Old Testament then plays an active role. That's letter B. It's not been abolished. It still plays an active role until, letter C, it, its purpose has been accomplished. Accomplished. 
Now, the reason he's saying, why we're saying Old Testament there is that Jesus is saying the law and the prophets. Now, the Old Testament, to a Jewish mind, was, had three different categories. There was the law, which consisted of what's called the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then there was the writings, the historical books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. There was some poetry included in that, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And then there are the prophets, the prophets, where you get into the majors and the minors. Major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, minors like Haggai, uh, Malachi, um, and, and, and the rest of them, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. So we have those guys there. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, and he, he alludes to it later, but he's generally categorizing the entirety of the Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. Now, many different religious teachers had questions about Jesus and his ministry. We have to go back in time to understand what did they think about Jesus then? I mean, imagine for a moment that a religious teacher shows up in your school, in your neighborhood, at your place. You see him on YouTube. You see him all over the news. And you're wondering, who is this guy? You have to remember that God had called the nation of Israel to a purpose. They had a responsibility to be a light to the nations and to help bring about the Messiah who would be the Savior of the entire world. That they largely failed in being a light to the nations but God still fulfilled his purpose by bringing his Messiah into the world. But when they see Jesus, they ask themselves, who is this guy? He's teaching like no one else had up until that point in time. He has a new teaching and with authority. So is he disregarding the Old Testament? What do we do with it? Did he come to abolish it? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, before we go on any further than that, I want to stop for a moment, and I want us to examine how people look at the Old Testament. How do people look and understand the Old Testament, not only in Jesus' day, but moreover in our day? So we're going to be to examine the different practices of looking at the Old Testament, or different perspectives, if you will. So that's number three in your notes. Examining those different, pers or to number two, excuse me, examine the different practices of looking at the Old Testament. What do we do with it? Well, first of all, there are some, some of those who simply disregard it. Disregard it. They look like, it, like old stereo instructions with an 8-track stereo. How many of you had 8-tracks? Wow. Okay. How many of you still have the instructions to the 8-track? Okay. That's what many people, how they look at the Old Testament. It was relevant at the time, but then it's been surpassed by newer technology. Why keep it around? That's how some people look at the Old Testament. They just simply disregard it entirely. It has no meaning, no function at all whatsoever. Now secondly, there are those who disable it. Disable the Old Testament. And these are those who say that the Old Testament has no bearing on us because we are New Testament Christians. Now you see this in some particular denominations, specifically those who come from a Church of Christ background. Now I'm not here to, to put down any background if that's your background. That's not my intent whatsoever. I'm sure the church that you came from was a great church. What I'm looking at is the doctrine of that particular group. If you were to walk into a church of Christ, you would quickly discover that there is no instrumental music at most churches of Christ. Because they, they say this, we speak where the New Testament speaks, and we're, new te we're quiet where the New Testament is quiet. And so the New Testament never explicitly says, praise the Lord in 
in uh, instrumental music, so they just sing vocally. Now, the problem is, is they're totally disregarding what God has said throughout the Psalms, praise the Lord with the cymbals, praise Him with the stringed instruments, praise Him with all that, because they totally say it's done, it's disabled, we don't need it any longer. Not that they disregard it, they say it had a great purpose then, they care about it, but it has no bearing on us today, which is wrong, because they're totally disregarding what Jesus said here. I did not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And there's many different things within the Old Testament that we do look at and apply. When Jesus is saying the law and the prophets, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is he referring to? Now, the law had three categories. There was the ceremonial law on how one was to worship and conduct oneself in the Jewish temple or in the tabernacle. And and we don't have the tabernacle or temple anymore, so we can't apply those. This is not the tabernacle or the temple. If that's the case, none of us would even be in this room because we're all Gentiles, okay? So that's the ceremonial law. And then there was the civil law, which was enforced in a theocracy, which was a a people and how they were governed in their daily goings in and out. There were the purity laws and what you did with mold if it was on the wall. And all of these ever different codes that are no longer enforced because we are not a theocracy. We are not the nation of Israel. So that's, we have the civil, ceremonial law, we have the civil law, but then there's the moral law. That's represented by the Ten Commandments, and that is repeated, many of them, most of them, in the New Testament. Now the moral law is what transcends time. They're timeless. They are, they are inculcating their, God's attributes, they are imprinted with the truth of who He is and what He desires of man. So those moral laws are still in place today. And then we have the prophets. Now the prophets were pointing and predicting what would happen at a certain moment in time when Israel disobeyed. But they were pointing to the coming of Christ. And who he was and what he was to look like and and what to, to expect and how did they order their lives accordingly. So when they saw all of that, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill it. To fulfill it. So there are those, though, that disable it completely and not seeing that it still has, not seeing that it still has a purpose. But how else do people interpret it? Or how do they look at it? What perspective do they employ? Thirdly, we're going to look at the third one. There are those who try to distort it. Distort it. Now this is where the devil comes in. The devil knows the Bible better than you will. He knows it better than seminarians and Bible college students. He knows it better than the Bible teachers on the radio. The devil knows the Bible. Why? Because he's been around a long time. And he knows it. He's studied it. He knows it so well that he knows how to manipulate it. Have you ever manipulated words before? Have you ever done that? We do that all the time. Where someone says a word and we take it a different way and we do it intentionally and we kind of twist the meaning of it. I mean, that's what the devil does. Think about what the, the devil did with Scripture when Jesus was in the wilderness. He quotes the Bible to its author and misuses it. I mean, he quotes from different Scriptures. When he quotes, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3 in the first temptation. In the second temptation, he quotes from Psalm 91. And then in the third one, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But he was distorting it. He was twisting the meaning 
of it. And we see Christians. I, I, I have traveled through different parts of the world. I have been in different theological schools. I have interacted with people from several different denominations. And the number one problem is how to interpret the Word of God. Number one, without exception. How do we look at it? How do we apply it? And then there's some people out there just saying whatever they want to say, and they're putting meaning in the text. That's called eisegesis. It's what theologians call it. When you put meaning in the text, it's not there. Then God wants us to do what we call exegesis, draw the meaning out of it, because God has one meaning that he intends with many different applications of that. God wants to speak to you, and he speaks to all of us, Through his word. And we're to place ourselves under that word and let it speak to us. But there are many churches out there and denominations that totally distort the word of God. And we have to be very careful because we can do the same thing. We can. I remember when I first became a Christian, I got in uh, one of my good friends that I had growing up had come from a very um, apostolic background. A very charismatic background. And she, from outward perspective was one of the most on-fire people that I'd ever seen for the Lord. The church that I'd grown up in was very quiet, reserved. And here were these people shouting and screaming when I went to their church. And I thought, well, they must have Jesus in the church I go to, men and I. That's what my assume was. I was 18 years old. Didn't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at them, and then the next thing I know, I'm at the service with them, and I'm being surrounded by people telling me that I have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. And I'm thinking... What? I don't know where that's at. I don't know the Bible really well. And they're saying, just move your mouth. Move your mouth and have the Holy Spirit come on you, and then you will be saved. Well, and I, and I, the more that I, I hung around them, I started reading the Word of God, and I'm like, something's not jiving. Something's not right. And I ended up going off to college, and I encountered someone else that was in the same group that she was in. And so I encountered them, and this guy took me to church, and I'm at his church, and all these people are shouting and speaking in tongues, and I'm sitting there going, am I missing something? Am I not giving myself over to the Spirit of God? What's going on? And they're around me too, telling me that I have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. And I, So I, I, I remember talking with this friend who invited me, and I said, you're telling me that I have to be, speak in tongues in order to be saved? And he goes, yes. And I said, wow, I have a problem with that. And he said, what? I said, I go to the Word of God and I read. And I don't know much about it. I've only been in Christ a short time. But I read in the book of Corinthians that it says, let there be no more than two or three, and let there be an interpretation. And I said, I, don't, I go to your church, and not everybody, everybody's doing it at the same time. And he goes, well, in the book of Acts, he said, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit dropped on them and they all spoke in tongues. I'm like, yes, but then Paul gives regulations on it. And he's like, hmm. And I said, well, he said, well, you have to have the evidence of, of the Holy Spirit in your life by speaking in tongues. And I went, you know, I don't see that in Scripture. I said, if you're telling me that I have to speak in tongues just one time and I'll be saved? And he goes, yes. Then I said, if, if I speak in tongues more than once after that, that means I have the gift of, the, the gift of tongues and then there has to, there'll be an interpretation? He goes, yes. And I said, then your church is false. And he said, what? I said, because everybody's doing it all the time. If it was just the evidence of the Holy Spirit, then that would happen one time. After that, it's over and over and over again, and there's no interpretation. It's mass confusion. It's people chasing an experience, and not Jesus. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in God, experiencing God, but that is not it, according to what I see in the Word of God. You are distorting the Word, and you're turning people away. 
Do I believe that people can speak in tongues and that God can, by his Holy Spirit, do that? Yes, I do. But I've never seen it. Not according to the word of God. Not according to the word of God. See, the devil likes to jump in and distort the word. And we see that going on in our day and age. With many Christians coming and saying, this is no longer a sin any longer. I was talking with some well-meaning, searching people who just came to Christ and uh, come from a very, very worldly background, and we were sharing with one another, and the, and the topic of gay marriage came up. And uh, they said, well, what's the problem? They said, God is love. Two people love one another. Then it's okay. Now, the scripture does say God is love, but God is also a God of wrath, and a God who calls certain things sins. And not just that, he calls many things sins. Drunkenness, or or gluttony, or stealing, or lying, or blaspheming, they're all there. Am I letting the world determine my interpretation and understanding of Scripture, or am I looking at the Scripture to determine the world? We have to ask ourselves that question. Because the devil likes to distort the Word of God and get Christians off on tangents, or to make it try to say something is accepted when it's not. And, and we can continue to go our own way, but we're going to crash into the shore if we don't deviate and listen to his word and apply it to our lives. When we apply it to our lives, then we go in joy. Because God has fixed his word firm in the heavens, and until heaven and earth pass away, my word will never pass away. God has given us this word for our blessing. And joy. And so I hurt with those. I'm not trying to, to put people down. I, I admit that there are people that are struggling with this, but I also see people are struggling with, with all of these other sins alcoholism and drug addiction and, and sexual addiction. And I see people struggling all over. And to say that this one is okay and acceptable is like saying all the others are okay and acceptable. And I hear people say to me, well, there's things that God said were bad, now, bad then, but are not bad now. We know that are bad now. Or He said they were good then, and we say they're bad now. And I said, what do you mean? Well, they said, well, look at slavery. God said that slavery was good. And we know now that slavery is evil. And I said, well, wait a minute. God never said slavery was good. God said, gave people instructions how to live within slavery in an institution that was fixed in the ancient world. And he said, this is how, how to live within it. And if you can't obtain your freedom, then you should. You should. He's not saying it was good. He was showing people how to live within it. And then, then I hear them say, see, these people say to me and how they misinterpret the word of God, and they say, well, homosexuality was bad, and we understand that the Bible condemns women and puts women down. I said, where? I see the complete opposite. I see Jesus exalting women and accepting men and getting in conversations with women when women in the ancient world were considered property and had no legal status of testimony in the public court. And you see Jesus entrusting the biggest task in the history of the world to women when he appeared in his resurrection form to whom? Women. When they considered they had no testimony in the ancient world, he elevates the status of women. But see, even the world today has a distortion in how they look at the relationships between men and women. And we see being besieged in our schools and in the public eye. And people are not understanding how we are to live and be. And we have all this worldly stuff trying to dictate to the meaning of Scripture. But God's Word is fixed and determines what, that, what the true meaning is. God has and intends for us 
to put ourselves under that meaning, to reorient ourselves, or we will be crashed on the shores of the world. Because if we say these things are acceptable and, that, and we're saying, oh, we're being bigots, we're not being bigots, we're calling sin what it is. And it's calling our sin to an account as well. We're placing ourselves underneath that same standard. And when I see churches deviating from that task, when I see churches turning away from the word of God and they're saying that that's okay now, this is okay. And you see this in many denominations now where they say, well, the man doesn't need to be the leader in the home any longer. He doesn't need to be the spiritual leader. The woman can take that role. And I guarantee you, and I promise you this, in every denomination where that's taken place, homosexuality is the next step, always, without exception. I, I, I can't, you can look at it. These denominations that have capitulated the word of God, and I'm, again, I'm not out there to, I'm not trying to bash denominations because there are believers in many of these churches, strong believers, strong believers that love the Lord and that grieve at this, and many of them are deceived. And I'm not saying we have the complete truth, okay? I'm sure there's something that we're probably wrong on too. I'm not so arrogant to say that we know everything. We don't. But I know that I don't know a lot of times. And I know that God can show us as we continually humble ourselves and look to him to receive guidance. So we have to go back to the word of God and let the word of God determine for us to be that fixed light that he has established for us to orient ourselves to. Now, there are not only those who disregard it, there are not only those who completely disable or distort it. There are those who depend on observing it for righteousness. Depend on observing it for righteousness. Now see, this is what many of the Pharisees and the scribes did. They thought, they thought if I can do the literal act of the law, then I'm going to be righteous in the sight of God. But see, they had outward conformity without inner transformation. Their heart wasn't engaged, because God is always about the heart, and there are those who depend on it. And Jesus condemns them. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. Great passage right here. Let's call that up. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I'm the fulfillment of this. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You think by observing that and doing all of these Jewish laws that you're going to be righteous in the sight of God, but it's not about that. It's through me and me alone that you have life and meaning and direction and purpose and righteousness. Because we know that there are many Christians today that are going back to the Old Testament thinking that they observe Jewish laws, and again, we have to understand how to apply it. But they think if I do Jewish law, and if I have this, this uh, if I observe these festivals, or I do this, then I will be blessed in the sight of God. But we know according to the word of God, like we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and I, I know we're, we're going through some huge theological truths here, but stay with me. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Declared righteous is what that word means. In his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the... Observing the law doesn't make one righteous. Here's another one for you. Romans chapter 9, verse 31. But that Israel, the people of Israel, pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. No matter how hard they tried to observe it by observing all these outward laws and creating rules and regulations, they weren't able to attain, obtain righteousness. And here again, we see the next one, Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. He is the end of the law. Now then, let's, let's pause and get our bearings here for a moment. What's the purpose then of the Old Testament? We, we, we said it's active, it's not been abolished, but yet we're not going to the ceremonial law or the civil law. We're looking at the moral law, we're looking at the prophets, because we know we're not doing all of those things. Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Then we need to stop and ask ourselves the question to understand the purpose of the Old Testament. That's the third point in your notes, understanding the purpose of the Old Testament. Here's the first part of it. The first part of the Old Testament's purpose was to guard against sin. Guard against sin. It was to act as guardrails on the expressway. We've talked about this several different times. The guardrails, guardrails aren't there to oppress you. They're there to keep you safe so that you can go about your life enjoy. So it's to guard against sin. What does Psalm 119 verse 9 say? Can we call that up? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now he's referring there to the Old Testament. The psalmist didn't know anything about the New Testament. Now we can look through the lens of the New Testament and expand that. But in that context, that primary meaning was referring to the Old Testament. A young man could keep his way pure, and the understanding of purity was also joy and peace by guarding it according to your word. Now, also, we also see this in Romans 7, 7 through 12. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? People thought that the law was sinful because it awoke sin in them. By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't know what sin was or, or deviating from it. That's why it's guarding. It's showing me what is wrong so I can step back out, so I can get back in my lane, if you will. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For why, what I, excuse me, for I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What that means is this. It's like with a child. You say, don't touch that. And what's that child suddenly want to do? Touch it. So it's God saying to us, don't do that. And suddenly we want to do it. It's awakening sin in us. Our sinful natures want to, want to stretch and try it. So it awakens the commandment and he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. In other words, I learned what sin was, and I learned that I want it, and that I'm a slave to my sin, that I'm dead in my sins and transgressions, because I can't resist it. That very commandment, that promised life, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Holy, righteous, and good. And that it brings us to a knowledge of sin and how to guard against it. But it does more. See, the Old Testament also gives us a sense of guilt. Guilt. And that's a good thing. How is guilt a good thing? Because it showed us what God required to come to Him. Look at what Romans chapter 3, verse 19 through 20 says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in the sight of God, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, he's saying that whatever the law says, it, sh it shows that everybody is guilty. We're all guilty in the sight of God. That's what James says in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, 
has become accountable for all of it. Well, you can say, well, how is that? How is, is murder different than, I mean, murder is different than lying, right? Well, it's like this. We've talked about this before. Imagine you have a chain that you're connected to. You've got something around your waist, and you've got a chain, and that chain has 10 links. Now, and you're dangling over a big cavern on this chain. Does it matter which link I cut to send me to my doom? If it's the first one or the 10th one, doesn't matter. All of them leads to the same place, death. So if we've broken the first commandment or the 10th commandment, any of them that are broken, I'm guilty of breaking all of it because I'm declared to be dead because of it. So we're held accountable for breaking it. So we're all guilty in the sight of God. But here's the main point of everything right now. It's not just to, to guard against sin and to, to, uh, to show us uh, that we're guilty in the sight of God, but it's to guide us to the Savior. It's to lead us to Jesus. That's the point of it all. The point of the Old Testament was to lead us to Jesus, to show what God required, how we were to be pure, what it needed to happen, the sacrifices that needed to occur, the righteousness that God required, how we had broken the law, how we couldn't keep the law, but only Christ did so perfectly, and it only is through him that we can have forgiveness and life. That's what Galatians chapter 3 says, verse 23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive, prisoners under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Like a guardian. Someone has a garden, a child has a guardian, and that hands them off to whoever, whomever is next. It's like at an airport when a, when a child used to fly. My wife used to fly a lot when she was a kid, and... Uh, because her parents had been divorced, so she would fly from one family to the other, so her parents would walk her to the airport. They would put her, have someone put in charge of her that would watch her on the plane with her brother, and then they would make sure that she got off and got to her, her destination and to her other parent. See, the law was to guard us and take us all the way to Jesus. That was the point of the law, was to be our guardian and lead us and guide us to the Savior in order that we might be justified by, not by works of the law, but by faith which is believing, trusting in what Jesus has done for you and me. That's what we are to be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the point of this Old Testament law was to act as a guardian until Christ came. He was the one to whom the law pointed to. But we talked about the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus says. The law and the prophets. Now, what were the, the prophets doing? Same thing, pointing people to Jesus. That's what 1 Peter is talking about here. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to Jesus. In them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Did you know that angels long to understand the salvation that you have? That you are so often bored by? The angels in heaven, these great spirit beings, that whom God created to serve him, long to understand how we, who are fallen and much weaker can experience the salvation of God 
and then even becoming their judges. You know, the scripture says that we will judge angels. By the way, somebody doesn't die and become an angel. All right? I know there's a lot of Christmas movies out there. What is it? It's a Wonderful Life. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. No, poor theology. Don't look at Christmas movies for your theology. Okay? God created angels, spirit beings, to be his servants. So, and demons are fallen angels. Satan, named Lucifer, is a fallen angel. That's why he pretends to be an angel of light. He's been there, done that. He knows how it looks. He seeks to deceive many people and keep people from receiving the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus by keeping people blinded and distorting and deceiving. And he is very much at work. The point of the Old Testament was to help guide us to, their, to the Savior. The Old Testament pointed to him as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And, and we understand now, what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. These are the promises that sustain us. And did you know that in the Old Testament there are still prophecies of Christ that are yet to be fulfilled? Did you know that? It's interesting, there's a passage on our back wall above our sound booth, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free to those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus quotes from the scroll of Isaiah. It's the first public act that he does in his ministry. But it's interesting that as he quotes Isaiah, he cuts it off mid-sentence. Cuts it off completely mid-sentence. Because the next thing is the favorable year of the Lord and vengeance of our God. Because that time is not yet. That prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. See, he was fulfilling it at that moment in time. So we're getting ready to celebrate Advent, and there's Advent, but then there is Easter, and all of these are prophecies, and yet there's, there's the prophecies of the consummation that is to come, the day of the Lord, and the Old Testament is speaking to that, that there are things still yet to occur and happen. So we hold on to these promises of the Old Testament that God has. It's still active. It still has a role. We hold on to these promises. Now, the purposes of, uh, purpose of this, these commandments is to teach us to love the Lord and others. Love the Lord and others. Look back at verse 19 of our passage for today. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what was the, the purpose of the Old Testament commandments, if we could put it into two things, was to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We're so, it's to love God and others. And then the second part of the commandment, which is a summa, summation of them, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a summation of the Old Testament, uh, basically all the Old Testament commandments. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So love the Lord and love others. That's the purpose of these promises that are to, they are to lead us to do. Secondly, these promises help us to lead others to live like Christ. Now, see, if Christ is the fulfillment of the law, 
and the commandments bring us to see him, then we should look at the life they are leading us to live. We are not to relax these commandments. Now, relax in Greek is luce. It's very interesting when I came upon this word studying it. I remember studying it in seminary because it means to loose, to destroy, to undo, dissolve, anything bound, tied, or compacted together. Jesus is saying that you're not to loosen yourself from these. Now, not to say that we can find righteousness by them or to go and observe the law, but we are to see where this moral law leads us to. We're not to dissolve, annul, or remove them, nor should we teach others to do that, but we are to do them. Look back at that passage. Whoever relaxes or tries to annul it, one of these, least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same. And he's saying that they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now the word least is elasistos, which means least, smallest, very little, and great is megas, which simply means great. And the kingdom of heaven is that exactly that. It refers to the kingdom of heaven when we get there. So he's saying there that if you're teaching others to live like Jesus, in other words, you're discipling people to live like him, then you're going to be great in the kingdom of God. But if you're telling other people not to live like him, nor are you doing it yourself, but yet you claim by faith to have him, then you're at least in the kingdom of God. Now, some people say, well, at least I'm in the kingdom of God. At least I'm in. But yet we also have to understand that with other scriptures that say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? And shall um, idolaters, shall adulterers, shall, shall all these people inherit the kingdom of God? By no means. Because see, when people say that I'm going to continue in sin because I have faith, that makes no sense. The idea is being active. The idea is, is that they weren't teaching and doing what God wanted them to do, but they still had faith that justified them. They might have been in ignorance, or they may not have had right teaching, but they still had faith that had them the desire to do what the Word of God said. While others who completely disregard it, and they say, well, I made a decision long ago. Is that a faith that saves? No. Faith is always active, not static. So we have a tendency to think if we can get someone to just pray the prayer and go through it and make that decision, they're in the kingdom of God. No. No, a thousand times no. So many people have been abused by that understanding. Yes, you can pray a prayer, and, and that should indicate a new relationship with God, but it's not that prayer that saves you. It is confessing with our mouth Jesus is the Lord and believing in your heart. That's an active understanding. Continuing on. That just gets you in the race. It's continuing on to finish the race. For people that say, I'm in the kingdom of God, and then they step out of the race, you're never in the race to begin with. It's not just about getting someone to pray a prayer. Because I hear people say that all the time. Oh, they prayed when they were eight years old. So, what? Where's their faith now is what I want to know. It's like saying that I signed the fire insurance policy a long time ago and it's still active now, even though I've moved from a different house and I'm homeless. Makes no sense. So we have to go back, and it's an active understanding of a faith in Christ to lead other people to live like Christ. Now notice again, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. See, the idea there is not just relaxing the commandments, but teaching other people. But he also says, to, who does them and does teach them. So the idea is passing the faith on to the next generation. That is a hallmark of Christianity, is teaching and discipling other people. Parents, this is primarily your responsibility. You are to teach your children to live like Jesus. You will be held accountable for teaching your children to live like Jesus. 
I was reading my devotional time yesterday, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verses, chapters 1 through 3, and I came upon Eli, who was a priest in the Old Testament. This guy was a great priest, bad dad. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And these guys abused the temple, sacrifices. See, they were to have these, meat would be brought in by people. They would boil it. They would put it on the altar. They'd make sure all the fat was taken away. And then they would give it on the altar to God. And then the priest would get his portion. These guys would walk in, stick the fork in in the pot, and they said, I want my sacrifice now, please, my meal. And they're like, no, 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 it hasn't been offered yet. The fat's not even offered yet. They're like, I don't care, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to beat you up. Well, that's a real godly guy. Okay, be wary if your pastor tries to beat you up. Right? Daryl. <laughs> okay. Um, so they try to beat him up. And then what they tried to do? They started sleeping with the girls that served in the temple. And, and uh, Eli hears about it. What's he do? nada. Nothing. What happens? God judges him for it. He dies, his children die, and he loses the priesthood. So the point of that is that you can, you can have all outward appearance of godliness, but that doesn't mean you're a good parent in the home. And I'll tell you right now, that scares me to death. Because I'm in process of this right now. Time's going to tell. Now, you might be older, and, you're, and you might have taught your children rightly, and your children still could rebel. I think the prodigal son's dad was a good father, and he still rebelled. There's not a perfect parent, okay? I don't mean to throw that on you. And I know some people got saved later, and your children are grown. Continue to pray for them. Pray for them. And share it with them. But for those of us are in the trenches right now, I, I, I get scared, because like begets like. I want to teach my kids what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And at the end of the day, i got to release them into the world. That scares me. And I'm going to be held to an account for that. So I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. So I disciple and teach them, and I want to make sure that I'm teaching other people rightly. And we all should be teaching someone. It's part of the gospel. Go and make disciples, right? Does it say go and get fat on your faith? Sit around and do nothing? Just show up and hear the sermon? No, go and do what? Make disciples. Are you making disciples? Am I making disciples? What does that mean to make disciples? Does that mean just looking at the Romans road and going through it and having them pray that prayer? No, it means teaching them by the entirety and integrity of their life what it means to orient their life under the lordship of Jesus and his word and how to apply the word of God to life. It means how to handle and be Christ-like in your marriage. It means how to handle anger, how to handle money, how to deal and raise your children, how to handle stress at your workplace. These are all what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not just praying that prayer. I don't know where we get that just the prayer is it. I don't know where that came from. It's more than that. It's the entirety and integrity of our lives. Entirety and integrity of our lives. Teaching people to live like Jesus. Now, go back to our text. We're going to finish up with our last point. Therefore, verse 19... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Count that. A good way to study your Bible, by the way, is to count how many times a a phrase or set of words are repeated, especially in a section or swath of Scripture. That helps us to get an idea of the primary meaning that God has for us. So we see here, 
least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that's twice. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying there, there's something about heaven that he wants us to understand. That there is an understanding of looking to of what the finished product of our lives will be and what we will inherit. And that is the kingdom of heaven. Think long term, not short term. So we need to look to the glory of heaven. Look to the glory. Look forward to it. I think many of us dread heaven and not look forward to it. I mean, we look forward to heaven. It's just like, you know, one day we know it's going to show up. One day, just not today. Not today. I've got too many things I need to do. It's because we fail to understand the glory of heaven. We need to look to the glory of heaven. Now, how righteous were the scribes and Pharisees? I hate to group them together because I'm sure that there were some good ones out there, but Jesus is highlighting their outward righteousness without the inward heart because they took pride in outwardly conforming to the extra-biblical rules and regulations but still had impure hearts. The righteousness that we must have comes not from observing the law, but it comes from the inside out, from surrendering our lives to Christ that he might change and transform our hearts and souls from the inside. The kind of righteousness that surpasses the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees is the righteousness that comes by faith in Him. So what, what does God want us to take away from this passage? It's kind of been all over the place. But we're going to nail three things here real quick. First of all, and this isn't in your notes, we don't throw out the old T, it still has a purpose. And that's to point us to Jesus. Show us how to live, to encourage our hearts, to show us how we can worship God in spirit and in truth. It's all, but it all points to Jesus. Secondly, God's word is going to stand firm. It doesn't matter what enemy comes. It doesn't matter what scholar sells his supposed book on atheism and makes it the number one book in the New York Times bestseller list. I guarantee that it will never surpass God's word, and it will never remove it. You can't delete it. It's always there. And thirdly, last of all, we must seek to know how to live God's way for his glory. Which means this, if you find yourself and you're, you're, you're trying to get God to move, he's not going to. He's not going to change for you. He wants you to reorient your life and change for him. To order your life according to his word, to reorient your way, to have a change of mind. That's what repentance is, by the way. A change of mind, a change of direction. To turn away from pursuing your own selfish desires and sinful pursuits and go to him and find his word where there is fullness of joy and health and prosperity and peace and shalom of God. So have you done that? What is the word of God? How does it apply in your life? What play, part does the word play? Do you read the Bible? Do you let the Bible read you? Do you place yourself under the word of God and let it speak to you? Do you practice the Russian roulette way of reading? I'm amazed at how many Christians do that. You know what I'm talking about. We've talked about it several times. Let's say, what should I read today? Yeah. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Lord, what do we do? We need to be systematic in our reading. Reading a little bit at a time. I'd start in the New Testament, not neglecting the old, but if you're, not new, if you're new to Bible reading, start in the New Testament. Read a little bit at a time. And read it daily, just like you're eating. You don't miss meals very often. I can tell. Not too many of us in this room miss meals often. 
Why do you miss a meal with a word? Let it be your guidance. It's like when I walk out of the house and I don't have my cell phone. You ever done that? And you suddenly feel naked? Like, I, I don't have a way to reorient orient myself. Where's my phone? Because my phone has everything I need in there. It tells me, it gives me directions, gives me instructions, tells me how the weather is going to be, tells me the climate, tells me it's an alarm to wake me up. It does all these different things. And you know, the Bible does so much more. It tells us the spiritual climate of the world. Showed us where to get information, but not just information, but transformation. Shows us where we're headed, where we need to go. And it's alarmed to wake us up when we're in our spiritual lethargy. The Word of God is much more applicable. It's immovable. We need to apply it to our lives for His glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, Lord, You have proclaimed in and through Your Word that it will go forth and through your word, it will accomplish the purpose for which it was intended. And so often, Lord, you would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Lord, you were doing that to awaken us to the reality of our spiritual fallenness and our, the disobedience that indwells within our hearts. Lord, help us understand your word. Studying the Old Testament can be very complicated and challenging and disheartening and overwhelming. But Lord, we ask that you open our hearts to receive the truth of your word, to see how it points to you and how it finds its ultimate meaning and fulfillment in you. Lord, help us not to completely disregard it, but to see the truths therein that help us point to inner heart transformation that comes from faith and believing what you have done for us on the cross for our sins. Lord, it's by faith that we are justified in you. And Lord, for those who are, for us who are dead and dull, we're dead in our sins and our transgressions, we're dull in hearing what the word of God has for us, waken us to the reality of who you are so that we might experience all of the joy, peace, and wholeness that we find in and through you. Lord, you are the one that gives meaning, you are the one that gives purpose, and help us cling to these precious promises that you have laid out in your word, that we might find joy in living in this sinful and fallen world. Lord, we look forward to the glory of heaven and all that is to come. Help us to focus our hearts and minds that way as we go about our daily business, as we interact with children and co-workers and classmates, as we are overwhelmed with the stresses that we find in everyday life. But may we never lose our focus on you. May we let you determine the reality of our lives and the certainty of what is to come and help us not to be shipwrecked and to go our own way according to the knowledge and wisdom of this world. So use us, guide us, guard us, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.